Unedited Cast. June 28, 1993. Just before 3 a.m., Long Island State Troopers Deborah Spargan and Sean Rune notice a pickup truck moving down the parkway in front of them. The vehicle lacked a license plate, so they decided to pull the man over and write him a citation. Turning on their lights, the troopers pulled out onto the Southern State Parkway and signaled for the driver to pull over. The vehicle continued on, neither picking up speed nor attempting to evade the officers. Even when Officer Rune got on the car's loudspeaker and demanded that the man pull over, the truck kept driving. The officers called in for reinforcements and then watched as the truck missed its exit and slammed into a lamppost at Manola Avenue. The officers slowed to a stop, pulling in behind the truck. Cautiously, they stepped out, guns drawn, and approached the truck. The man surrendered to them, handing over his license, which identified him as Joel David Rifkin. While waiting for backup, the officers noticed something underneath a tarp in the back of his truck as well as a smell, a sickeningly sweet stench that turned both their stomachs. One of the officers approached the back of the truck and pulled back the tarp. What lay underneath was nearly enough to cause the officer to gag on the spot. The body of a woman, badly decomposed, lay within. When questioned, Rifkin admitted that she had been a prostitute whom he had murdered, and that he was currently on his way to dispose of the body. Horrified, the officers placed Rifkin into the back of their squad car, thankful that they had stopped the madman from getting rid of the body, but blissfully unaware that what seemed like a simple open-and-shut case would grow to become Long Island's most notorious. This is the Death Cast, and this is the story of the Long Island serial killer, Joel Rifkin. Hello, and welcome to the Death Cast. I am your host, best-selling author, Kim Totten, and as always, I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take a look at another new case. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Long Island serial killer Joel Rifkin. However, before we get into that, I have the normal show notes. If you would like to follow me on social media, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and MeWe. Just search for Ian author. If you're on Facebook and you would like to join the group for the Deathcast podcast, search for the Deathcast and put in an application. I will approve it unless you happen to have what I consider to be a suspicious account. Then you can forget about it. I've had a number of 
bot accounts recently attempt to try and join the group, and I'm sorry, but I'm not going to put the members of said group at risk by allowing phony profiles to join. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Corpse Creek Publishing. If you would like to help the show out, go to the official website, corpsecreekpublishing.com. Click on the donate button. Buy me a cup of coffee. As everyone knows, I drink a lot of coffee. And for those who have donated, I send my sincerest thanks. Donations go to help with the production of this show. While you are on the website, please consider joining the mailing list and check out my novels, which are up on there. That would be the Blood Gods Trilogy, The House of Silver Doors, and The Throwaway Girls of Olympia, soon to be joined on November 30th by my sixth novel, Maggie which will be coming out in paperback, hardcover, and ebook. So keep your eyes peeled for that. There'll be more information in the next few weeks. By the time you hear this, however, the ebook edition of Maggie should be available for pre-sale on Amazon. A quick plug for a friend of mine. He has a new podcast coming out on the day that this one drops called Croaking Hazard. He covers a wide variety of topics from UFOs to conspiracy theories to serial murder. So check it out. That is Croaking Hazard, which is, as far as I know, going to be available on all podcast platforms. Alright, now that all of that is out of the way, my peeps, freaks, and geeks... Get yourself something to drink, find a nice big comfy chair, sit back, relax, close your eyes. We are on episode 50, the big 5-0. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. Alright, as you heard in the show opener, we're covering Joel Rifkin today, the man known as the Long Island Serial Killer. And I actually remember when this happened growing up in New Jersey. This was a massive story on the local news. I mean, this was our John Wayne Gacy, just based on the amount of coverage that this case received. I remember that once he was in custody, there was quite a number of nights where we would see footage of Rifkin in the courthouse. As I had said, in the early morning hours of June 28, 1993, Long Island State Troopers trailed a pickup truck whose driver did not have a license plate on the vehicle, and after repeated attempts to get the driver to pull over, the vehicle crashed into a lamppost at an intersection, and after approaching the driver and securing from him his driver's license, the two officers who had smelled a stench of decay 
looked in the back of the pickup truck and discovered a tarp under which was the decaying body of a woman. Uh, being questioned, the driver, Joel Rifkin, admitted to the officers that the body belonged to a 22-year-old prostitute by the name of Tiffany Bresciani and that he had had sex with the young woman before killing her, further going on to state that he was on his way to dump her body near the Republic Airport. Rifkin was taken to police headquarters and thus began a fairly long interrogation process during which the 34-year-old Long Island native began to confess to a series of murders that absolutely horrified the officers who were interrogating him. Rifkin wasn't your atypical serial killer if such a thing exists. And there's a lot of serial killers who simply murder their victims, and I don't mean to sound cold when I say that, but a lot of serial killers will rape and then strangle or stab their victims. Rifkin was not like that at all. Uh, He wasn't like another infamous New York serial killer, the son of Sam. Rifkin went to great lengths to remove all traces of his victims, including chopping their bodies up and placing them in different locations in an effort to, again, make them disappear completely, and if they were found, make it harder to identify them. Rifkin didn't just confess to a few murders either, he actually confessed to a total of at least 17 victims spanning a four-year period. He also notably described every one of his victims as working girls or prostitutes, which a number of the victims' families would later dispute. Before we get into that, however, we're going to look into who Joel Rifkin is. He was born... January 20th, 1959, to an unwed college couple, with his biological father being an army veteran. Shortly after being born, Rifkin was placed up for adoption, and at three weeks of age, he was adopted by a middle-class couple. Ben and Janine Rifkin. In a few years after Rifkin was adopted, his parents adopted another child, a little girl. In 1965, the Rifkin family settled in East Meadow, Long Island. Joel seems to have had a fairly standard childhood. He was an exceptionally intelligent student, although he failed to do well in school, and it was noted that he was not very well liked by the other kids in his class. 
His family later said that he shared in his mother's enjoyment of both photography and arts and crafts. Rifkin graduated from high school in 1977, and despite having an IQ that has been reported as somewhere in the 128 range, failed to cut it in college, something he would attempt on numerous occasions over the next decade plus. He also would drift in and out of jobs throughout his life, working at one point at a record store in Times Square in a florist. Most notably, however, he was known to be a self-employed landscaper. People who knew Rifkin stated that he seemed perpetually depressed. He walked with a sloped-shouldered, small-gated walk that had earned him the nickname in school of the Turtle. It doesn't appear as though Rifkin ever lived anywhere really outside of his parents' house, although I'm sure there are a few occasions where he may have attempted to do so. He was something of a homebody who is known to have had only one real serious relationship with a young woman who described Ripkin as quote-unquote sweet but constantly depressed. At some point during this period between graduating high school and 1987, Rifkin began to visit prostitutes. And it seems that the majority of his crimes, if not all of them, were sexually motivated. Although apparently Joel kept this particular activity of his away from the prying eyes of his family. Most of the women he picked up during this period operated out of Times Square in New York, which, for those who don't know about Times Square or have only seen brief depictions of it in movies, Times Square back in the day was a real disgusting area of New York. It was really a a vice den filled with drug dealers, pimps, and prostitutes. In fact, the last time I was in New York, over near Penn Station, you could see the working girls lined up on the corner. This was in the early 2000s, after Disney bought most of Times Square up and pushed a lot of that activity from the area. They are still there. It's a very heavily trafficked area, and women will go there either of their own volition or at the behest of their pimps in order to ply their trade. Again, there's millions of people in and out of Times Square on a daily basis, so there are plenty of opportunities to find work and Rifkin was one of the men who partook of this. Rifkin is fairly unique in terms of serial killers in that there is not, as far as I could find, any of the 
triad that is typical in cases of serial killers. That is bedwetting, fire starting, and animal cruelty. And it seems, at least from an outsider's perspective, that he most likely than not began to take out his rage against women, probably because of some unrequited love from his past, or maybe because of that and the severe depression that he was suffering from. Uh, individuals with massively high IQs do tend to suffer from extreme bouts of depression more often than individuals of average intelligence. And a prime example of that would be James Dallas Egbert III, who was really a child prodigy, but he suffered from extreme bouts of depression because of how intelligent he was. In fact, made national news because he went missing from the Ohio State University, only later be found with a friend. This was all revolved around the pressure put on him by his parents, as well as the pressures that he himself and having this monstrous IQ placed upon him. He was, you know, expected to always succeed. So much to the point that he ended up killing himself in 1980 at the age of 17. I suspect that Rifkin was dealing with very similar mental issues as Egbert, and I don't mean that Egbert was going to turn into a serial killer, I just mean that they both had very high IQs, were socially inept, and were not very good at talking to members of the other sex or fitting into their surroundings, whereas Egbert was pushed to succeed by his parents, Rifkin does not appear to have been really forced into anything by his family, although I suspect that he it was very down on himself because he knew he was capable of doing, you know, really well in life, but because of his depression, he was unable to get himself motivated to succeed. In February of 1987, Joel's father ended up committing suicide. This was because the older Rifkin had been suffering from cancer and decided that he could no longer take the pain any longer. And apparently, after his father's suicide, Joel really began to spiral which is something that you do see quite often with serial killers. They begin their murderous sprees, usually where some titanic event takes place in their life prior, whether it be the death of a parent, uh, the loss of a job, the dissolution of a 
marriage, a lot of times something major in their life happens that is the catalyst to pushing them over into their life of crime. And Rifkin really was no exception to this. On August 22nd, 1987, Rifkin, then aged 28, was arrested in Hempstead, Long Island, for attempting to solicit a prostitute. What happened here was there was a sting going on in Hempstead, and apparently Rifkin attempted to solicit an undercover officer. Rifkin ended up paying a fine for this particular arrest and hid this from his mother and sister. And here you can start to see the compartmentalizing of his life, which is something else that a lot of serial killers do. They keep aspects of their life separate from other parts of their life. For instance, John Wayne Gacy kept his crimes separate from his public image and from his marriage until eventually his wife figured out that he was attracted to men, at which point the marriage eventually dissolved. Or Ted Bundy, who had so many different aspects of his life, different public personas that he kept compartmentalized. As everyone knows, he was involved, I believe it was a suicide prevention hotline, as well as going to law school and being involved in uh, local politics, while on the other side, he was stealing pretty much everything he owned, as well as going out and committing horrific serial murders. Rifkin began to do this as well, keeping his illicit activities separate from both his work and familiar life, while at the same time going deeper into darker aspects of his personality. It's known that Rifkin began collecting magazines and newspaper articles concerning serial killers who primarily targeted prostitutes such as the then unsolved Green River Killing and it seems he really became obsessed with these lurid tales of murdering young women. From what I've gathered he was you know, the type of individual that kept scrapbooks on these particular articles and this really began to feed the fantasies that were playing out within Joel Rifkin's mind. Although, we don't know when he really began you know, his killing spree. According to Rifkin himself, it was in 1989. Although there are a slew of missing persons cases, mostly of prostitutes, prior to that, which have never been solved, and a number of them bear the hallmarks of, you know, 
Joel Ripkin's M.O. We're not going to be looking at the supposed crimes which he was responsible for. We're just going to look at the ones that it's known that he committed, and we will get to that in just a moment. selling author of the House of Silver Doors, the Blood Gotch Trilogy, and the throwaway girls Olympia comes Maggie, a book which New York Times best-selling author Keith Elliott Greenberg has called a classic detective story, well-crafted, and a supernatural vortex. Maggie the name was burned into Lieutenant Carl Jablonski's mind like a brand and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night or how she had danced in the flames of her burning home. Maggie, who was she and why did no one in Kaya's Crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers. Quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie, Carl felt haunted by a visage, even as the local reporter, George Murphy, told them of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured. Maggie, hers was a crime begging to be solved, and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. The real question is, will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, available 11, 30, 2021, in paperback and hardcover. Ebook pre-orders are now available at Amazon.com. Only from Corpse Creek Publishing. You have been warned. And we are back. I'd like to thank my only current sponsor, namely myself, for that ad, as well as Keith Elliott Greenberg for glowing words of praise for my upcoming novel, Maggie. Back to our case, following his arrest in Long Island for solicitation of a prostitute, Rifkin switched from procuring them in his home area over into Manhattan, where he felt it would be much less easy for police to ensnare him. And his first known murder took place on February 20th, 1989. Now, there's some discrepancy as to when this crime actually took place with some sources stating that the young woman was actually killed in 1988 and others stating that she was murdered on February 20th of 1989. I am going to go with the 1989 date. 
a known prostitute by the name of Heidi Susie Balch was murdered in her home in East Meadow, New York. And I say his first known victim because Rifkin did not just kill this young woman. In fact, he savagely mutilated her body afterwards, which in the world of serial killers for a first known victim is usually pretty unique. Most of the times with serial killers, they will kill their victims, and if there is going to be some sort of predation on the body after the crime has been committed, they slowly work their way up over the course of a series of murders. They don't generally kill their first victim and then really just chop them up into little pieces, which, you know, my sympathies to this young woman's family that's exactly what Joel Rifkin did to her. It is known that he removed her teeth as well as fingertips and placed her head inside of a paint can that was later left on a golf course in Hopewell, New Jersey. He put her legs in Poquanic Creek near Jefferson Township before throwing her torso and arms into the East River. This case lay dormant for a number of years. Uh, Susie's head was actually found on March 5th on the 7th green of this golf course, but it would be 20 five years, give or take, before she would be identified, and police were only able to do this when one of the detectives working this particular cold case recalled Rifkin's story of dismembering the young woman. I'm going to read a small excerpt from Rifkin's confession just briefly. This was culled from multiple sources. You can find snippets of him actually speaking. However, they are included in a Walt Disney production. And since I absolutely hate the Walt Disney Company uh, and refuse them to give them any of my money or business, I will not be playing any sound clips from them. I must have hit her 20, 30 times until my arms got tired. It was with a howitzer shell I picked up at a flea market for like 25 cents, 50 cents. It was just two-handed like a baseball bat, sideways, up, from the top. I just lost control. That particular account is from Rifkin's confession. However, it is not from his first murder, which again... He apparently killed the young woman, Susie, at her own house. He killed his next victim, a woman by the name of Julie Blackbird, whether that's an assumed name or actual name, I am unaware of. And much like Heidi Balch, 
Joel dismembered her body and spread it out over a large area, again utilizing woods and canals as well as rivers to get rid of the evidence. Apparently, the act of dismembering his victims is something that greatly disturbed Rifkin, and he began to move away from that. On July 14, 1991, the body of 31-year-old Barbara Jacobs was found in the Hudson River. She had been strangled, and there was a good deal of decomposition on the corpse, which made time of death particularly difficult for police. One thing that the investigators noted, however, was that Barbara's body had been put inside of a plastic bag before being forced into a cardboard box. I'm going to include a victim here that isn't listed on most of the official kill counts of Jolt Rifkin, specifically because I found it on Murderpedia, which, for those of you who are unaware, is a website that was created by a lawyer who has since passed away, and quite often the information found on Murderpedia is very well researched and unlike places like, say, Wikipedia, can actually be verified. On September 23, 1991, the body of a 31-year-old woman by the name of Yun Lee was pulled from the East River. She had been folded in half, so almost like she was can picture her legs sitting on the floor and her torso folded over onto her knees. Her body had was inside of a steamer trunk and was badly decomposed. On October 1st, 1991, the body of 22-year-old Mary Ellen DeLuca was found in a field in Cornwall, New York, which is in upstate New York. Now, DeLuca had been missing for about a month when her naked body was found strangled, and it would be two years before she was actually identified. You would think that the police may have started to suspect that they had a serial killer on their hands. However, because of the location that the bodies were found, and the fact that most of these young women went missing from Manhattan, the police had really no idea that they had a serial killer in their midst, which is one of the things that helped Ripken get away with his crimes for the number of years that he did. According to Rifkin, just before Christmas 1991, he picked up a 28-year-old woman by the name of Lorraine Orvieto, whom he strangled and shoved inside of a 55-gallon oil drum. 
which was later dropped into the Coney Island Creek. And Lorraine's body remained undiscovered for at least six months. And this was something new as far as how Rifkin disposed of his bodies. After Lorraine's murder, he began disposing of further victims inside of these drums, with a unnamed Jane Doe being pulled from Newtown Creek in Greenpoint, Brooklyn on May 13, 1992. On July 9th of 1992, another oil drum was found in Coney Island Creek. This one contained the body of Marianne Holloman, who was a 39-year-old woman. Holloman's body was discovered two days before Lorraine Orvieto was found, and at this point, the police began to realize that they actually had a serial killer operating. According to Rifkin, he killed another woman in a similar manner, and dropped her body into the Harlem River, although the woman's identity as well as her remains have never been located. Rifkin states that he does not recall where he dumped the woman's body, but my own personal opinion is that more likely than not, there's a very good chance that this victim was extremely young and therefore he does not want to admit to it because of the stigma that is attached to child killers inside of prison. A lot of serial killers will claim you know, they're all of their victims except for the ones who were underage. For some reason they have an aversion to admitting that they took the child's life. In April of 1992, 25-year-old Iris Sanchez went missing, and she was strangled and driven out to JFK Airport, where Rifkin left her in a vacant lot lying beneath a mattress, and believe it or not, police did not discover this body until after Rifkin's arrest. On May 25, 1992, Rifkin struck again, this time killing Anna Lopez, whose body he dropped in the woods near Interstate 84 in Brewster, New York. At some point after killing Annie Lopez, or Anna Lopez, Rifkin killed 21-year-old Violet O'Neill, whose body was found in the Harlem River at 123rd Street. Now, it's hard to piece together what actually happened with Violet, although I believe that Rifkin had gone back to his dismembering ways, as other parts were her of her were found in the East River at 23rd Street, and still further parts of her body were found near Governor's Island. It should be noted that police discovered at Rifkin's mother's house a wheelbarrow with the body 
bodily fluids of numerous victims inside of it, as well as a chainsaw that was stained with those same fluids. On December 21st, 1992, the remains of Mary Catherine Williams, age 31, were found in Yorktown, New York. On November 17th, 1992, the remains of Jenny Soto, 23, were found in the Harlem River in the South Bronx. And according to Rifkin, Jenny Soto was the only number of one of his victims who actually fought back against his attack. According to Rifkin, she actually broke her nails while attempting to scratch out his eyes, at which point he broke her neck. On May 9th of 1993, the body of 28-year-old Lee Evans was found in Northampton, Suffolk County, New York, when her body was discovered after Rifkin's arrest, it was skeletonized. On June 9th, June 29th, 1993, a body was found in the Long Island Central Pine Barrens, which belonged to Lauren Marquez, aged 30. Something else that should be noted of Ripkin's attacks. He would usually keep the bodies for a few days, oftentimes in the garage at his mother's house before getting rid of them. There are a number of hypotheses that have been thrown at as to why he kept the victims' bodies after murdering them. My own personal belief is that there's the very real possibility that he was engaging in necrophilia with some parts of the body which would not be out of the realm of possibility with a killer of Rifkin's caliber. It was also discovered that a number of his victims were taken to the house during periods of time when his mother and sister were not home, at which point he could do as he wished before hiding the bodies and then later disposing of them. Rifkin has been characterized as a killer who saw his victims as beneath them and believed he was doing society a favor by getting rid of these young women. Similar in the vein to what Gary Ridgway felt that, you know, by killing prostitutes, he really wasn't committing a crime because these women did not exist in his mind and were simply there to be used and gotten rid of. After his arrest, the police searched Rifkin's mother's house extensively and what they found within his room, in addition to the various articles on other serial killers that he had obsessively collected, were driver's licenses, uh, pieces of jewelry that belonged to his victims, as well as a large pile of clothing. Another thing that police discovered is that with at least one of the victims, 
Rifkin drove his mother in the car with the corpse inside of the trunk, and his sister drove this car herself just a few days before he was arrested, unaware that the young woman was in the trunk. This young woman, incidentally, was the one who was found in the back of Rifkin's pickup truck, which was Tiffany Freschiani. When finally brought to trial, Rifkin was sentenced to nine counts of second-degree murder. The distinction being that first-degree murder requires premeditation, while second-degree murder basically means it was a a crime of passion, which I'm sorry, but in Joel Rifkin's case, I don't believe there was any crime of passion aspect involved in it. So that's just a little bit of strange information. You know, they have his confession. He led them to bodies, and yet they did not charge him with premeditated murder. Part of that may be because Rifkin admitted that there were a number of women who came to the house with him or that he engaged in sexual activities with whom he did not kill. At any rate, Rifkin was basically given life without the possibility of parole. And initially, he was housed at the Attica State Prison under really 24-hour solitary confinement. This due to the notoriety of his crimes as the state did not feel they could adequately house him in the general population. This came about after Rifkin and another notorious killer, Colin Ferguson, the notorious Long Island Railroad shooter got into a fight over a public payphone. Supposedly, at least as the story goes, they got into this argument over whose crimes were being reported on more, and the argument ended with Ferguson punching Rifkin in the face. In 1998, Ferguson was transferred to the Clinton Correctional Institute, where he remains in solitary confinement. He has argued in the past that solitary confinement is a violation of his constitutional rights. However, these arguments have not been substantiated, and as of today, he is still in 23-hour-a-day lockdown. That is it for the Death Cast this week. I hope you enjoyed my look at convicted serial killer Joel Rifkin. Again, if you enjoy this show, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Podcast Addict. Please check out the official website, CorpseCreekPublishing.com, and click on that domain button, buy me a cup of coffee, and sign up for the mailing list while you're there. The DeathCast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Until next time, stay morbid.
best-selling author of the House of Silver Dolls, the Blood Gods Trilogy, and the throwaway girls of the best-selling author Keith Elliott Greenberg has called a classic detective story, well-crafted, and a supernatural vortex. Maggie, the name was burned into Lieutenant Carl Jablonski's mind like a brand and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night or how she had danced in the flames of her burning home. Maggie, who was she and why did no one in Kaya's Crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers, quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie, Carl felt haunted by a visage, even as the local reporter, George Murphy, told them of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured. Maggie, hers was a crime begging to be solved, and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. The real question is, will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, available 11, 30, 2021, in paperback and hardcover. Ebook pre-orders are now available at Amazon.com. Only from Corpse Creek Publishing. You have been 